you'll see that there is no question mark by the quiz four. So quiz four is today. So it's not going to be possible in two hours for you to ask enough questions to delay it. So sorry, you can't get out of it this time. <laughs> so no matter how many questions you ask, I'll still have plenty of time to get to it. Might cut into your lab time, but I'll, I'll get I'll get there. If you want to cut into your lab time, I'd be doing your lab at home. Oh, okay. It's a starry night lab too. So, so quiz four is in class today. Be a, hopefully a very, very easy quiz. I'll give you all the answers before. So you'll have all the answers. You'll have a chance to see them. Then you just have to be able to, can, can you reproduce them? So should, should, be very, should be very easy quiz, I hope. Uh, second article review also due today slash tomorrow morning if you're submitting it online. You've got till 6 a.m. tomorrow to submit it for full credit on D2L. Homework 5 I gave out last time, uh, or last couple, couple times ago. That's due next Friday. And then the following week we have Quiz 5 covering chapters 11 and 12 and Exam 3 coming up the following, the following week, the beginning of November. So we're getting through the class very quickly. It just started like last week or something it feels like and all of a sudden we've got November dates coming up on our, coming up on our list of assignments. So, questions, questions? Boy, they're, they know they're not getting out of it. No bother to ask questions. I get it. All right. Picture of the day for today then is Venus, the zodiacal light, and the galactic centers. We got all sorts of stuff on this one today. We do have the planet Venus, uh, very bright down towards the bottom. Third brightest object in the sky after the sun and the moon. And if you haven't seen it yet, take a look out in the west after sunset on any clear night. And when you see that very bright object out there as the as the sky begins to darken, that is the planet Venus. It's very nicely visible in the evening sky right after sunset, pretty much for the rest of the semester. You'll be able to see it out there. It'll slowly be fading into the sun come late December. So that's Venus. That's one of the things that you're seeing. Uh, up at the top, the other obvious thing you're seeing is part of our galaxy. That's the, our part of our galaxy up here. So. There's the Milky Way galaxy. Uh, the diffuse light is just from all many millions and millions of stars all sort of put together very, very far, very, very far away heading off towards, in this case, the center of our galaxy. We also see the dust, that there's this darker area in between where light is being blocked out. It's not that there's fewer stars there. There's actually a lot more stars there. We just can't see them because it's essentially like looking, trying to look through a brick wall at them. That brick wall might have one speck of dust here and one speck of dust, you know, half a light year away. But when you add that up over thousands and thousands of light years, all those little tiny specks of, specks of dust effectively make a very good wall and you cannot see the visible light through them. So a lot of that gets blocked off. The more dust there is, the darker areas you end up with. So we can't see our, the center of our galaxy in visible light. It's just too much material in between us and the center of our galaxy. So those two put together in one image. And the other thing that we see is the zodiacal light. The zodiacal light is kind of this faint band of light stretching across the screen from top to bottom. The zodiacal light is also caused by dust. And not, not as far away as the galactic, as the center of our galaxy, but actually dust within our own solar system. And what happens is sunlight Leaves the, sun, leaves the sun, right? Doesn't all come to us on Earth? Well, if it came to, all came to us on Earth, we'd be, we'd be burned to a crisp if every little bit of sunlight was coming to us here. Most of it heads out into space. 
Well, within our solar system, there's a lot of dust scattered around. Dust particles, things left behind by comets, things left behind by uh, meteor impacts that have scattered material around the solar system. And that dust will reflect the sunlight back to us. Some of it. Most of it heads, most of it heads out back into space. But a little bit of it will get reflected back. And there is what we call the zodiacal light, which is the reflection of sunlight by that dust. And that's what you're seeing here stretching across stretching across the image. So it is, again, it's just the sunlight being reflected by the dust particles within our own solar system. Questions, questions? So all sorts. If you haven't seen Venus yet, make sure you get out there and take a look. So otherwise it'll be another year and a half before you see it in the evening. With the naked eye? Not, not to the resolution that you're seeing, the, the center of our galaxy there. You wouldn't be able to see it, but you would be able to see this kind of image could be seen with the naked eye, yes. You could see, that, you could see Venus, you can see this, and you can see the zodiacal light all at once with the naked eye. Now, again, this, the Milky Way will not look near that detailed. It'll look like a nice fuzzy pet. You would need a pretty dark sight to be able to see it. So if you're going to go out here and try to see it, you know, downtown Harrisburg, no. You've got to get way out in the middle of, you know, on the middle of the world. But yeah, you would be able to see something like that. That doesn't require any detailed telescope or anything else fancy. In fact, I didn't check what it was taken with. Um, does it say? That's probably just a regular camera that probably didn't even need a telescope at all, considering how, what kind of scale you're looking at there. Uh, Jupiter is visible. We were just doing this before class. Uh, what did I say it rises? Like 11 o'clock at night? So it rises about 11 o'clock. That means at 11 o'clock it's on the horizon. You're not going to see it. Give it a couple hours to get up higher. So about, about 2, 3 in the morning. And that'll get earlier by, you know, about 2 hours every month. So a month from now it'll be rising at 9 o'clock and be not visible by maybe midnight. Two months from now, it'll be rising by 7 o'clock. And hey, we'll be able to see it by 11 o'clock at night. You know, 10, 11 o'clock at night, it'll be up high enough in the sky. So it's visible. It just depends on when you want to. If you're the morning person like me, you know, you can see it easily. You can see Orion right now. Orion's still nicely visible. But in the morning sky. But you've got to be up, you know, at 5 in the morning or earlier. And I see all the faces, so, or some faces at least. Other questions? Otherwise, we will finish up. I've got a little bit more I want to cover on this. We were doing the HR diagram. I put it back up on the board for you, so you got all of that there. That's what we were looking at last time. We went through and made up the HR diagram, starting with doing the axes. One axis is temperature, some measure of temperature. Could be the temperature itself, big numbers to the left. Little numbers to the right, meaning the, so the hot stars are to the left-hand side. You could use the spectral class with the O stars over to the left, the very hot stars, the M stars to the right. Or you could use the color index that we talked about last time. So a way of measuring the temperature of the star directly just by looking at how bright it is in two different filters. Color index actually increases towards the right. So very small number for the color index. Negative 0.1, negative 0.2 is a very blue star, very hot star. A positive number, plus 1, plus 1.5 or more, is actually a very red star. So 
The way the numbers go on these varies depending on exactly what you're plotting, but in any case, no matter which way you're doing this, it's always hotter stars here and cooler stars here. The other axis, you're plotting the brightness of the star. How luminous is it? The brighter stars end up at the top, the fainter stars end up at the bottom. You could plot luminosity. How bright is that star really? You know, some measure of how much energy it's putting out. You can plot the absolute magnitudes. Remember magnitudes are just a measure of the brightness and absolute magnitude is how bright that star would appear if it were 10 parsecs, about 32 light years away. Or in some cases, some special cases like we did with the clusters, you can plot the apparent magnitude. How bright the star appears to be in the sky. You can only do that with clusters because all those clusters, all the stars are at the same distance away from us. Right? Just like to somebody in uh, the other side of this building, you know, everyone in this room is the same distance away from them. Are a couple of people a few feet closer? Yeah. Does it really matter? No. It's not going to make any difference in terms of that. Well, in terms of the stars, yeah, that cluster might be, you know, a thousand light years away, but if it's, and it might be, you know, ten light years across. Ten light years out of a thousand? Big deal. Right? Nothing is really significantly closer than the others. All of those are essentially at the same distance. And if they're at the same distance, then the apparent and absolute magnitude will not be the same, but they'll just be shifted by a constant amount. So you'll be able to easily be able to plot the apparent magnitudes in, this, in those cases in a cluster. Now if you're doing a random set of stars, just pick random stars out of the sky, then you cannot use the apparent magnitude. When you plot these, you end up with something like we get up on the screen or up on the board here. You end up with the main sequence here in green going from the upper left down to the lower right. That's where most of the stars end up. Our sun turns out to be right about in the middle of that somewhere. Not a real hot star, not a real cold star, not a real bright star, not a real faint star. Kind of just in the middle. That's about 90% of the stars. Another 10% or so are in the red giants. And then I squeezed in the supergiants there as well. So red giants are up here above, uh, above the main sequence and up towards the right. As you move in the HR diagram, as you go up towards the upper right, you, the stars get bigger and bigger. So you can imagine it going diagonally from the very tiniest stars down here. And as you move up, you get bigger and bigger and bigger stars till so you get to stars the size of the sun. White dwarfs are significantly smaller. And as you move up towards this corner, you get the largest stars that exist. So our Vy Canis Majoris that we looked at a little while back would be the, would be the largest known star is way up in this upper right hand corner. Very, very cool, but very, very bright. So, and then the white dwarfs down here are the cores of dead stars. So they'll sit down there, um, sit down there and essentially they just cool off. So they'll start off at some temperature extremely hot. It's the core of a star like the sun. Right? Sun is 15 million degrees. So when you take off all the outer layers, you have an exposed core that's 15 million-ish degrees or more. And that'll quickly, quickly start to cool off and then slowly cool off down to more normal temperatures here, 20 or 30,000 degrees. And that white dwarf will slowly cool off over time uh, until it darkens completely. Eventually it'll cool off and radiate all of its heat out into space. So let's see. That's where we were finishing up last time. So I was explaining about, I did a little bit on this already, why we can use the apparent magnitude in a star cluster. It's because they're all the same distance away. But we can also use that fact 
to determine the distance to the cluster. So if we can find out the apparent magnitude, that's easy to measure. If we can figure out the absolute magnitude of some of those stars, maybe through maybe through a parallax or combining, looking at them with, uh, on the HR diagram, matching up the main sequence, then we can do a calculation and go ahead and figure out the distance. So it's actually something you can calculate. If you know these two numbers, everything else there, except for the D, is something you know. And you can then calculate the distance. And that's sort of what we call spectroscopic parallax. It's a way to determine the distance to the cluster. So we can plot apparent magnitudes because they're all at the same distance. And then we can go around and use that fact, use the fact that we now have a main sequence, if we figure out how far it is shifted from this main sequence. Maybe that main sequence is a little bit above it or a little bit below it because all the stars are going to be a little bit fainter or a little bit further, a little bit fainter or a little bit brighter depending on whether they're closer than 10 parsecs away. They look a little bit brighter. Or if they're further than 10 parsecs away, they're going to look a little bit fainter than a standard main sequence. You can use the amount of that shift to then give you the distance. So it's a way to get the distances to the clusters as well. Now I want to have one, was it one more I wanted to do? So here's a couple of examples. You looked at these already. In fact, you made these, made these already. Um, these are a couple of HR diagrams for a couple of different star clusters. And we see, in this case, a very old star cluster. There's the main sequence down here. You also see, you start to see some of the subgiants, but most of the stars up here in the giant and supergiant branch. Uh, there's a couple other sections that we'll talk about later on. Don't worry about like horizontal branch for right now. We'll come back and talk to that in another, after, after one more chapter. And then we start to see the white dwarf stars down here, the dead cores of the stars. So really what we're kind of seeing is uh, how, stars, what, how stars evolve. How do they go through their lives? So they don't stay on the main sequence forever. That's only a short part of their life. After they use up their fuel, they go through a little pattern uh, traveling around the HR diagram. Not traveling around space. They stay pretty much in the same spot. Uh, relative to the other stars, but they will travel around the HR diagram, meaning that their surface temperature will change and their luminosity will change over time. So the sun will do this. The sun is, you know, here right now on the main sequence. At some point when it uses up its, its energy, uses up its fuel, it'll move along this path and travel up through into the red giant phase. It then jumps back down and goes through a phase here and finally ends up way down here on the white dwarf branch. If you could come back in about six billion years. So, but for the next five billion, it's stuck on the main sequence and it's not going to do anything else. The other cluster here is another, another type of cluster, a much younger cluster. And we see in that that there are some red giants, not near as many as we saw in that other cluster. We see the main sequence, but the main sequence now goes up to these much, much hotter stars. It didn't on this one. It cuts off at stars a little bit hotter than the sun. And there are no stars up here anymore. That's because we also learn that stars, the bigger a star is, the more massive it is, the faster it goes through its fuel and the faster it runs through its life. So these stars, these O stars, might live a couple million years. Literally. Long time, right? A couple million years, 10 billion years for the sun. You know, they're gone like that. 
That's like a fruit fly compared to your life. They live a couple days. The average person lives, what is it, 70 some years now. So it's essentially nothing. They're gone like that compared to the other stars. And the sun is gone like that compared to some of these little tiny red dwarfs. They might last a trillion years. 10 billion years, a trillion years, big deal, right? It doesn't really make any, it doesn't make any difference by comparison when you're comparing those two rel relatively. So those red, little tiny stars will last the longest time. They're not producing a lot of energy, but they can do it for a very, very long period of time. Oh, uh, let's see, what else? We're going to come back to some of this after, so let me... Let me do a little bit, one section on the evolution of stars, and then I'm going to go ahead and we're going to jump into the next chapter. That'll finish up pretty much what I want to make sure we cover in here right now. What do we learn? As we watch, and I'll show you in one more slide, that stars will move around the HR diagram. They actually start off way up over here in what would be, look like the red giant range. Uh, they're not really visible then because they're still hidden away. But they'd start off way up in here. They'd be relatively bright, but hidden because they're shrouded by dust, so we can't see them. And they'd be very cool. As they cool off, they move down towards the main sequence and eventually land there. They move on the main sequence and they'll sit there for their entire life. However long they have hydrogen to burn, they will sit there. For the sun, that's 10 billion years. For a very hot star, it might be 2 or 3 million years. For a very, very faint star, might be a hundred, hundred billion years or a trillion years. It just depends on how much mass they formed with, how long they will sit on the main sequence. Then when they use up that energy, they lose their energy source at the center, the core starts to collapse, and the outer layers expand outward. So that star is going to puff up. That's what the sun will do in five billion years. It'll use up its energy. The core starts to contract down. There's nothing to hold it up against gravity and it will move up towards the red giant phase again. Now in chapter 12 we'll go through all of this in a lot more detail. That's just sort of a little start on it and image wise, I think I have one image here for you, that really shows what would happen to a star like the Sun. And the various stages starting with stage 7, what happened to stages 1 through 6, right? That's next chapter. That's the next chapter, and this, this is actually chapter 12. But this is the end life of the sun, but I just want to give you an idea of how the sun changes, what's going to happen to it. It's going to get, at first, cooler and much, much brighter. It jumps around and jumps around again, and then it kind of makes a big loop around until it ends up down at the white dwarf phase. So stages one through six are the formation of a star, so what it takes to actually bring a star to stage seven. Stage seven is the boring one that nobody cares about. That's where our sun is right now. So it'll be for 10 billion years. It's not doing much of anything. We like that it's not doing much of anything, right? If the sun were doing this, you know, in our lifetimes, get hot, get cold, you know, all sorts of stuff, it wouldn't be very pleasant for us. So seven is the boring phase, but it's a nice boring phase in that the sun is nice and nice and boring. So again, the star will move around on this HR diagram. That moving just means all it's doing is it's changing its temperature. So the sun will go from 6,000 degrees, it'll cool down to 3,000 degrees. It gets down to a planetary nebula, it's going to heat up to 20 and 30,000 degrees. Again, at different times. And again, we're going to go through that in much more detail in chapter 12, but I wanted to show you a little bit of that, a little bit of that here. Does that change the classification of the star? It would change the classification, yes. Uh, so the star, the sun is a G2 star right now, a spectral class G, subdivision 2. You don't need to worry too much about that. 
it will change. It will get cooler. It'll become a K star. It'll become an M star because that is only telling you the temperature. It doesn't tell you anything else about it. But when it does that, it won't become a K main sequence star, which would be way down here. It'll become a K giant, a K supergiant, and things like that. But yeah, the sun's spectral class will change. So its temperature changes, its te spectral class will change as that goes. Other questions? Yes? Go ahead. If, this, if our sun is in the white dwarf stage at 20 to 30,000, mm -hmm. how would that affect us if we were still here? Like, if we were still, if you could just magically put a white dwarf star there, I'd have to try to calculate exactly how much energy it would be giving off. It's going to be a lot of energy, but it's also going to be a lot smaller. That white dwarf's only about the size of the Earth. So it's going to be much tinier, too. So typically, I mean, the easy answer is we're going to be gone because when it expanded, we burned up. So there's not going to be anything left. But it might be interesting. I mean, there might be how much light would there be there for a while. You'd have a lot of light. It would still be bright. You'd still have some heat if you can survive the phase. The problem is there's no more energy source, so now it just keeps moving down. All it's going to do now is cool off. So over you know, billions of years, it'll slowly cool off and eventually get fainter and fainter and fainter. Yes, sir? Is there ever a point that the, the white dwarf cools off to the point where you could actually like, step on it? You could. You wouldn't want to, but you could. It would get to that, it would get to that point where it would get cool enough. There has not been enough time yet in the universe for that to have happened for any star. So even the first stars that became white dwarfs 13 billion years ago, they became a white dwarf then. Uh, there's not enough time yet. They're still not cool. Not, not that cool. They're still thousands of degrees. They cool off. They're small, so they cool off very, very slowly. But yes, technically, you could be able to step on it. Now, the problem is you've got the mass of the sun compressed down to the size of the Earth. Can you imagine what the gravity is going to be like? So maybe you step on it and you're smashed flat. I'm sorry? Yeah. You'd be, you'd be smashed into the surface. So it wouldn't be, you wouldn't be able to just stand and walk on the surface because, but yes, it would be that cool. I see your point there. But you would not be able to physically walk on it just because the gravity would be so strong. So if you could stand up to the gravity, trying to lift a leg would be you know, impossible just because you would not be able to do that. Uh, it would be a lot harder than, than achieving it from the Earth. It would be a lot harder to, than escaping from the Earth. It would be a lot harder to escape from that. It wouldn't be impossible. Light escapes from it very easily. When you get down towards neutron stars, it's borderline being a black hole. Light can barely escape from them. So we can see them, but it's not that far away from the speed of light, needing, needing light speed to be able to escape from one. Black hole, it's too much. What do you mean by Yeah, it would bend it. It would bend it. In fact, you know, the sun bends light, right, coming around it. Uh, Einstein's general relativity. Well, so would the so would a neutron star. It's got more gravity, more compact. It would bend it even more. Black hole, light coming by a black hole, would bend even more. In fact, that's you know, if you could be inside a black hole, you can shine the flashlight up, and the light goes up and comes back down. The escape velocity is greater. Just like you know, we throw something up in the air here, it comes back down. Well. You've got gravity strong enough there that light comes back down. Light is trapped in there, so the light can't even escape outward. So we'll do some of that a little bit more when we actually get to black when we get to black holes in a couple of chapters. All right. Well, that's what you need for your quiz.
I'm going to go ahead on, and someone already asked, yes, that is your quiz up there. So I'll leave it up there. Now nobody will listen to the rest of my lecture, but that is your quiz, essentially, is I've got a sketch and I ask you a bunch of questions about putting these things on. So essentially, you're recreating that. So I'll, it won't stay up there during the quiz, but I'll leave it up until then so you have time to look at it and know it. Yeah, but you can't use that as a reference during your quiz anyway. So. But that is what you're going to be. It's just the idea is that can you reproduce that? Can you show me where all the different aspects that I've, shown, that I've shown you are? So that's why I don't do it on there. It's just not easy to get 20 different people to be able to get a good, good a drawing program where they can put that in there. It's much easier just to have everybody sketch it out. So that's why I do that in, in class here. So I'll give you the last uh, 10 minutes or so of class to be able to do that. And then we'll do that and then go right into the break before the, before the lab section. So, on to the next chapter. Chapter 11, we're going to start, the next three chapters kind of go together. 11, 12, and 13 are all about uh, stars and the life of a star. So chapter 11 is the beginning of a star. How do we form stars? And looking at the interstellar medium, the material out there between between the stars, what material, gas, and dust is out there. Chapter 12 is stellar evolution. How does a star move around on the HR diagram as it, as it goes through its life? And then chapter 12 is the end states. Chapter 12 is what's left over. The white dwarfs, the neutron stars, the black holes. What can be left over after the sun goes through its life? So these next three are kind of tied, kind of tied together. So, let's see. Interstellar medium. There's a picture of some of the some stars, some parts of the interstellar medium. It's just any gas and dust that's being illuminated or even not being illuminated. If there's stars nearby, we can actually see it. It'll glow. If there's no stars nearby, it will still glow, but not like this. It'll still be excited by a very low energy and that will cause it to emit radio waves. So a lot of the material is not visible like this, not visible in visible light but it's visible in radio waves for some of the interstellar medium. And what we'll look at in this chapter, a couple of different things. Uh, we'll look at star forming regions and dark dust clouds, the areas where stars actually form. We've seen some of those pictures already through our photos of the day. And then we'll look at, bring, start bringing in the HR diagram again and looking at how a star like the sun would form. So you'll see we'll do that in chapter 11, we'll do that in chapter 12, we'll pick on the sun and say, okay, what would happen? How would a star like the sun form from this gigantic cloud of gas and dust that's light years across? How do we take that and we actually make a star? So we're going to look at how that process happens and then we'll look at you know, what might happen for a more massive star or a less massive star. Nice thing here is once you learn how the sun forms, all the others are pretty much the same. They really form. There's slight differences as to where they end up. Right? The low mass stars end up here, the high mass stars end up here, but the process is essentially the same. In, yeah, just how much, how much material is present. So if there's more material, there's a lot more material there, you can form a much bigger star. If there's a lot less material, then you're going to form, you know, however that clump broke off. So you're going to form, stars normally don't form one at a time, it forms in a group as a cluster. So some of those groupings may be a little larger, some of them may be a little smaller forming stars of different sizes. And then finishing up with star clusters there. So let's start looking here at the interstellar matter. What is in between the stars? Well there's two things. There's gas, 
and there's dust. Okay, gas is atoms, very small molecules, primarily hydrogen and helium. Just like we looked at the composition of the sun, you know, that's what, 99, 98, 99% of the sun? Well, it's also 98, 99% of everything in the universe. So all that gas and dust that you see out there in the, in the solar system is really all hydrogen and helium with little bits of other stuff thrown in. The gas is easy to see through. You can see through gas, right? Remember how uh, Kirchhoff's laws told us what a gas does? It absorbs, absorbs very specific wavelengths, but it doesn't absorb everything. So if you have hydrogen gas in between you and a bunch of stars, you'll see that hydrogen line being absorbed, but it doesn't absorb all of the light. Dust, sooty, smoky clumps of material, larger clumps, this is one that's real good at absorbing light. So that's when we look at an image like this and you say there's no stars there, right? It's empty. It's a big black hole, right? No, that's not for a couple chapters. But there's nothing there. Well, in reality, there is. There's a lot of stars there. There's just enough dust scattered in between us and those, star and those stars that are there that it blocks out all of their light. So we can't see what's there, not directly. If we look at that in the infrared, if we look at that in the radio part of the spectrum, we can then see through that dust. You know, radio waves will penetrate through, penetrate through a dust cloud. Just like they penetrate through, right? You can pick up a radio signal or a cell phone signal, usually, in a building. Well, the radio waves are traveling right through it, even though visible light can't get through. So visible light can't get through that dust cloud. It's all blocked off. But radio waves and infrared penetrate it a lot better and give us a chance to now be able to really look into these dust clouds. So the dust does two things. It's absorbing the light, blocks out those stars, maybe not block them out completely. You might notice there's a few scattered in there. Look really, really faint. There are a few in there. They're probably really bright stars. It's just absorbing out. Most of their light is being absorbed. So that dust will make the star look fainter and it makes the star look redder. And you'll notice that if you look right around the edge of this, you see an awful lot of red stars compared to the number of blue stars. You see a lot of redder stars here, a lot of redder stars down here. That's because the dust doesn't just absorb light, it loves to absorb the blue light. Blue light is much more effectively absorbed by the dust. So we don't see the blue light. If we take the blue light, if we get a nice spectrum, Got the whole rainbow there and you take off the blues and the greens and the violets, what do you got left? Reds, yellows, you know, or oranges. So the stars are going to look a lot redder when we're looking at them through a dust cloud. So it throws off and threw off a lot of our measurements until we understood you know, how the dust worked, that there was really dust out there. You know, something we've only learned in the last 100, 100 or so years about how much dust is really out there in the galaxy because that'll throw off things like our HR diagram. It'll make everything look a lot fainter than it otherwise would be. Something looks a lot fainter then we think it's a lot further away. Right? If we don't know about the dust and we, something looks fainter, well, it's got to be a lot further away. We see these two stars. One looks a lot fainter. Okay, it's a lot further away. Well, it's not, it's not necessarily the case if one happens to be looking towards a dustier area. So it can affect that. And it can also affect where it might appear on the main sequence. If you make it redder, 
It's going to look like a cooler star even though it really isn't. So looking at that and measuring like the color index of some of these stars, you've got to be able to take the dust into account. You've got to know how much dust is there. How much dust is there to be able to make corrections for that. So two different parts of the interstellar medium. Gas, a lot of the material doesn't really affect what we see. And the dust is really the one that does. It really has a big effect on what we can see because it'll block out that light and it will change it to a redder color. So here's an example of what it does, how it absorbs blue light. Here's two images. In fact, there's our same image that we just looked at. That's what we just saw on the first slide, seeing the big dark dust cloud there. This is in, a little chart down here tells us in red here that that was in the visible part of the spectrum. So we don't see anything there. If we look at this one, this is the same part of the sky, but taken in the infrared. So taken in the infrared part of the spectrum, all of a sudden you start to see a lot of stars in that section that was completely blocked out in the visible. So it's just saying that you're able to now look through that dust. The infrared is much better at penetrating through the dust. And we can then see, we can then see into it. It's going to be false color just because it's infrared, so it doesn't have any particular colors to it. What you will see is that some of the stars here, see if I can find a couple of them that work out. Well, there's one right here. This little tiny faint star here looks very red. If you look at it in the infrared, wow, all of a sudden it's the brightest star on the page. It didn't change anything, it's just that it's not emitting a lot of visible light, but it's emitting a heck of a lot of light in the infrared portion of the spectrum. Other stars that looked very blue, let's see, this one looks pretty blue and it just kind of disappeared. I don't see it at all anymore. It's probably one of these little ones down here. Again, emitting a lot of blue light, not emitting near as much in the infrared relatively. So it looks very bright in the blue. doesn't look near as bright in the red portion of the spectrum. Now, I said it can throw off your classification. If you're using the color index, it is going to throw you off. If you use the spectral class, it won't. If you actually get a spectrum of it, you'll be able to see the spectral lines. And those spectral lines are either going to be here, if there's no dust cloud and you're looking at it, or it's going to be like this where you've absorbed out a lot of the little bit of the red light, not so much. Blue, yellow, is red, yellow, orange. And as you get towards the blue, it's absorbed out a lot of the light. But the positions of the spectral lines have not changed. So if you take a spectrum of one of those stars, you're going to be able to classify it and it's still going to be classified as the proper class. So if you look at the spectral lines, they don't change, but the color of it does change. The color index would get thrown off if you're trying to make measurements. So when we were making early measurements, making early HR diagrams, not knowing about the dust really threw off measurements because we didn't know. You know we're just using the color index. Okay, it's so, such and such a temperature. Based on that, it's way over here, but it wouldn't quite fit in because it would, something else would be off with it. So it would throw numbers off in terms of the observations. All right. So where we see some star forming regions, we saw one already today. We looked at one at the beginning of class uh, towards the center of our galaxy. And here's another one, again in visible light. This is part of our galaxy. Again, a lot of it is blocked off by that dust. We see some of these objects labeled here M16, M17, M8, and M20 are star forming regions within our own galaxy. 
regions where stars are currently forming. Uh, Orion is another one. We see a lot of star formation in the set part of the sky Orion. And those are just areas where the material has condensed to a great enough amount that you're starting to form stars. So when you have that gas and dust spread out, out through you know, light years and light years of space, it's fine. It's just going to sit there. It's not just going to naturally contract. If you start to build it up into bigger clouds, and you compress those clouds through a couple different methods, you can then start to form stars. You can take this thing that might have been hundreds of light years across and start compressing it down to begin to form star clusters. And that's some of what we see here towards the Milky Way. We see a lot of these clusters within the Milky Way, within the Milky Way galaxy. So here's a couple examples of some of these nebulae. Their densities are incredibly tiny. I know they might look big here. These are the densities, how many particles you have per cubic meter. But if you have a cubic meter, that's a meter by a meter by a meter, right? That's pretty big space. And you've only got, in some of these, 80 million particles in it. That's a lot of particles, right? 80 million? You want to sit there and count them all? But you know, in the atmosphere here, you know, 80 million particles, I only need a little teeny tiny speck to get 80 million particles in the atmosphere. You only need a little teeny tiny bit to get that many. So these are essentially a nice vacuum. How much material is there? It's a lot of material. How many solar mass, how many, how many suns could you form out of that material? You know, hundreds to thousands. Only because there's not a lot of particles there. That density is incredibly tiny. But you're talking about 1,200, 1,500 parsecs. You're talking about three, four, five thousand light years. So a big, or sorry, distance, sorry, diameter, a diameter of parsecs, 14 parsecs. Or light years, multiply that by about three, and you got about 50 light years. So you got a cube about a diameter, a big sphere, about 50 light years in diameter. That's a lot of, a lot of, that's a lot of these cubic meters, right? A lot of them. So you've got a lot of particles there only because it's so large. So that's how you get all of this material. So you could form perfectly efficiently, right? If you can form every single particle and make a star, you could technically take M8 here and form over 2,000 stars. You won't be able to do that, right? Nothing is perfectly efficient. You might form some bigger stars, some stars that take up you know, 10 or 20 or 30 solar masses. You'd form some smaller ones that might only be half a solar mass. But you're also going to have some material, many solar masses of material left over afterwards. So you'll never be able to form quite that many, but you'll be able to form clusters that have hundreds of stars, you know, dozens of stars, hundreds of stars, depending on how much material and how efficiently it is able to collapse. So what do we mean by a nebula? A nebula is anything that's fuzzy in the sky. So a couple different kinds of nebulae that we have. Um, we have a dark nebula. We looked at those. A dark nebula is really a dust cloud. So if we look there on the left-hand side, we have dark nebulae scattered around. So here's some of these dust lanes scattered around. Those are dark nebulae. Again, there's material there. There's a lot of material there. In fact, there may be more material there than there is in some of the other areas that are glowing very brightly. 
They're just so dark and dense that we can't see anything through them. At least in the visible, right? You got a picture right next to that? It's the same nebula. Does it look the same? Close? Can you match out, can you match out some of the dust lanes at least in it? Right? There's dust lanes traveling along here and going down and well there's the same one. There's that spike going up and there's another one going out and around here. You can sort of match some of that up. Those are really the same nebula. This one's just taken in the visible. That's what you'd see if you looked through a telescope, very powerful telescope and took a picture of it. Here's what you'd see if you looked at it in the infrared. Interestingly enough, you see a lot of material up here in the infrared that's completely invisible out here. So one of the reasons we like to look at other wavelengths is because we see completely different, completely different sections of the universe, different things in the universe. So dark nebulae is one. The next one is an emission nebula. An emission nebula does just that. It's emitting light. So it is a gas, a diffuse gas that's being excited and gives off emission lines. So if it happens to be a hydrogen, mostly hydrogen gas, which typically it is, and you excite that, it's going to give off the primary colors of hydrogen which the most prominent one is red. So bright red line of hydrogen, that's why you get this reddish or pinkish glow in this emission nebula around here. So that's the reddish or red glow of hydrogen. If you look at other wavelengths, you can actually usually pick out lines of things like oxygen and other elements. You can also pick out those as well. But primarily what you're going to see in most of them is hydrogen. Now the other one that you can see sort of labeled in the diagram there is a reflection nebula. And a reflection nebula does exactly what it says. Now, what are these astronomers doing giving us names that actually do what, they, what they're supposed to, right? Half the other stuff was backwards or sideways or whatever. Well here a reflection nebula is reflecting light. So. The light comes out from a bright star here, reflects off dust. It's a dustier area. Not dense enough dust to completely block the light, but enough to be able to reflect the light to us. That looks a bluish color. So this one is red due to hydrogen. This one is blue, not helium. It's, it's actually just the light of the star. If you took a spectrum of this, you would not get specific emission lines. You'd get a continuous spectrum because all it is is reflecting the light of the star. We looked at the zodiacal light in the first in our picture today. If you took a spectrum of the zodiacal light, it would look exactly like the spectrum of the sun. That's all it is. It's sunlight being reflected off those dust grains and coming back to us. Well, in a reflection nebula, there's a bright hot star here sending off all its radiation. Some of that is getting reflected off those dust grains. It's not changing anything about that light. It's just sending it to us. So if you take the spectrum of this nebula, you get a continuous spectrum. Because it's not really anything in there. It's no gas or anything that's emitting the light. It's simply a reflection. It's simply a reflection of that star. So if you could take a spectrum of that nebula, this reflection nebula, you'd see exactly the same spectrum that you see of the star. Emission nebula would be quite different. That is emission actually due to hydrogen or other, or other elements. So three types of spectra of, of nebulae that we, all, that we typically see. Nebula has been used for other types of terms in the past. There was, ah, 
what are we talking, 100 and 120, 130 years ago, there were also the spiral nebulae. Nebulae that had an interesting spiral shape to them. Okay, they're not classified as nebulae anymore. Anyone recognize what they might be? Galaxies, spiral galaxies, very good. But a hundred, but a hundred years ago, hundred, getting to that point, about a hundred, hundred and fifty years ago, we didn't know that spiral that galaxies were galaxies. So I'll give you, I mean, they didn't know that they were something different. Uh, that long ago, everything was our galaxy, and everything else was within our galaxy. We hadn't expanded the universe that big. We didn't get to that understanding quite yet. It wasn't until the 1920s that the first measurements were made of the distance to a galaxy to show that it was not in our galaxy, that it was really millions of light years away. It wasn't until the 1920s that Edwin Hubble actually made those measurements. So, you know, even 100 years ago, we didn't know for sure what these spiral nebulae were. They were still classified with these. You'd have different kinds of nebulae. And that's why when you look at things like the Messier objects, the little M numbers that I gave you, on the first one, some of those are nebulae like this. Some could be emission nebulae. Some could be reflection nebulae. Some of them are actually galaxies. The Andromeda galaxy is M31. So M31 is the Andromeda galaxy. M42 is the Orion nebula. Two completely different things. Just look fuzzy in the sky. So technically, that's what nebula is used. This one we really don't use. You know, spiral nebulae is not used anymore except in a historical context. So we don't typically use that. If you're looking for the three types of nebulae, we're talking about things within a specific galaxy, that's these. But you would have those spiral nebulae as well. They used to be, they used to be what we classified because we didn't know. We didn't know that there were galaxies out there yet. We knew that there were these fuzzy little spirally patches. But not that they were, I mean, people argued, well, are they galaxies or are they not? But it's going back and forth until you finally get some kind of proof that will show you. What that proof was, was actually uh, Edwin Hubble took images of the Andromeda galaxy and found certain variable stars in it. And those variable stars can be used to measure distances. It's not one I've gotten to you quite yet, so we'll get to that in another, chap in another chapter. And I'll explain that a little more, but there was actually a way to be able to determine. He was able to pick out stars in another galaxy and determine essentially kind of like a spectroscopic parallax on them, but another step up on our distance ladder. So he was actually able to get those. So I'm going to go ahead and stop there so you've got time for your quiz. I'm running a little later than I thought, but you can take the quiz, take a break, and then we'll come back and work on, work on the lab. So everybody's got.